Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I'm Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, as you know, I'm the kind of guy who can see a silver lining and immediately start looking for the black cloud that's hiding beneath it. That's kind of my attitude. But uh, BJ Flores wants us to know that however bad things could be, always be someone who has it worse. Specifically, the former boxer turned Jake Paul trainer posted on social media uh, last week. So whenever you think you're having a bad day, just remember that story about the guy that was in the ER until 4 a.m. with a penile laceration from a dog bite. <laughs> yes, BJ was admitted to hospital uh, last week after being bitten on the penis by a dog. Yeah, he was in good humor about it uh, afterward, but did admit that it was, uh, you know, pretty terrifying in the moment, which I completely understand. I mean, um, raises the obvious question. Um, how about you, Eric? Have you ever been bitten on the penis by a dog, specifically? Oh, oh, by a dog. Uh, by a dog. No. <laughs> uh, seriously, I, I, I'm happy to say I've got a long streak going of being penile injury free. Um, <laughs> I had a, I had a rough eighth day of life uh, on that front. Understood. But uh, no significant lacerations since. I'm proud to declare. Um, now, as you know, Kieran, I know BJ Flores. Uh, I worked with him on a bunch of NBC broadcasts, and I told him back then that it was a bad idea to spread peanut butter on his junk. But BJ just doesn't listen sometimes. <laughs> He's his own man. <laughs> he is. In, in all seriousness, I like BJ. We got along great. I uh, haven't always enjoyed him so much on social media, but IRL, we always got along well. I like the guy. I wish him a speedy and full recovery. And for what it's worth, my understanding is that the injury wasn't that bad. I mean, right. I, I talked to the doctor who treated him, and I asked her, was it bleeding a lot? And she said it wasn't that bad. Her exact words were, it was just a little prick. Hey oh <laughs> come on, come on. It paid off the setup, right? <laughs> the sad thing on, on my end is I now have to clear my cache in my browser because <laughs> um prior to this, having seen the story, I went back to look it up again and of course had to do the Google search BJ Flores penis, mm -hmm. which I now absolutely need to make sure <laughs> is completely out of my search memory. Yeah, yeah. The Flores part is innocent enough. The rest of that search gets you into some trouble. <laughs> it's unfortunate that what I was looking for was what came up, frankly. <laughs> right. Just... All right, we better move on. Yes. Uh, this week on the podcast, we will look ahead to Friday's edition of Showbox, featuring the professional debut of Giovanni Marquez, son of last week's podcast guest Raul Marquez. Uh, we will speak with Derek James, trainer of Errol Spence and Jamel Charlo. Uh, they both have fights coming up on Showtime and Showtime Pay-Per-View. We'll run through the news, including the latest involving boxers and the invasion of Ukraine. But first, let's look back on this past weekend's action, beginning in San Diego, where Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez continued to roll back the years and defy the naysayers with a clear win over Julio Cesar Martinez. Yeah, Chocolatito, an easy first ballot Hall of Famer, made himself a tiny bit more of a slam dunk <laughs> selection with a tremendous, surprisingly dominant performance over an up-and-comer seven years his junior in Martinez. Uh, Martinez, despite coming up from flyweight, failed to make the superfly limit, uh, which in theory could have put Chocolatito at a disadvantage, but 
Nope, he pocketed some extra cash from Martinez's purse and handed him a decisive defeat. The punch stats showed Gonzalez landing 374 of 1,076 punches compared to 182 of 713 for Martinez. He outlanded him in every single round. He was pushing for the knockout in the 12th and landed 58 punches that round. Uh, The judges had it 118-110, 117-111, and 116-112 as the 34-year-old Chocolatito just keeps chugging along. And I question any pound-for-pound list that doesn't have him back in the top 10 mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, Kieran, safe to say our previous reports of Chocolatito's demise were greatly exaggerated. And how much longer can he keep going at this level? Well, I'll take the first part first. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's remarkable, really. Uh, I never forget. I looked at him from ringside when he sat slumped over on the canvas after being stopped in his second fight with Trissa Cat. And I thought for sure that he was done. I mean, he looked defeated, he looked deflated, he looked sad, he looked tired. But look at him since, you know, watch him against Moises Fuentes and Caliafi and against Martinez. If you'd gone into a coma after his win over Carlos Quadras and had just come out of it in time to see him beat Martinez, and you'd somehow remained unaware of the Tristacat fights, would you look at him and think, oh, he's really lost something since I went into that strange coma? Or would you just assume he was still the pound-for-pound number one? I Basically, I test, I think, the latter. Uh, yeah. he, he was terrific against Martinez. Um, his punches were short, they were sharp, they were accurate, they were hard. I mean, this was absolutely vintage Chocolatito. It was, he was doing what he does best. He put the pressure on, keep coming, and somehow both throw a lot of punches, like you said, over a thousand, while not wasting any of them. When he's in his groove, he always looks like he's thinking two punches ahead. I'll throw this and he'll duck this. I'll throw follow up with that and he'll block that. But then he'll leave himself open. And with a third punch, I'll crack him with an uppercut. It's, It was just a a terrific cerebral performance as well as a terrific action performance. And look, you mentioned Martinez failing to make weight. Uh, You know, he had to uh, make a certain weight on fight day for everything to go ahead. Maybe doing that weakened him. If it did, that's his own damn fault. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, look, you look at Chocolatito's last few years in total, including the Trissaket fights. Yeah, look, he didn't look great in his first fight against Trissaket. But I still thought he won it from my side. Me too. Um, Watching on TV, I definitely thought he won the rematch with Estrada. Although, as we said when we were discussing it, there was certainly a lot of close rounds in there. That's not exactly evidence of a guy in decline. Um, I do wonder if he benefited from the fact that he took a year off after the second Srisaket fight. Mm. And he's now fighting once or twice a year, whereas before it was three or four times a year. And... You know, even at his best, as as happens when you're fighting at 108, 112, 115, a lot of those fights were tough and grueling. And I just wonder now if with that break and with fighting just once or twice a year less, he's giving his body more time to relax and rest and heal now. And if that's helping make sure that he's really fresh each time he goes in there, because he looked super freaking fresh. He looked like the younger guy in there against Martinez. Um, For all that I said about never knowing when he's going to hit the wall, he looked pretty relentless on Saturday night. And, And the fact does remain that when you are at that weight and you're in your 30s, you are expected to hit the wall. And there have been a couple of times where we thought he had. He's now defying even that. Um, 
I think at the moment it looks as if the and unless that does happen, and it can always happen, right? It can all you just never know. You you could step in the ring and it just doesn't have it. I right now I would think the only thing that could possibly stop him is if he decides to move up to like 118 and 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 take on someone like a Noya Inoue who I just think is too big for him. But unless he were to go up and do that. Honestly, I wouldn't put it past him to be able to get a belt at 118 because he's that good. But that's really right now the only thing that I can think of that's going to stop him in the immediate future. It looks as if he's still got a little bit of life in him yet. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I agree that um, I wouldn't really want to see him go up to 118, that clearly 115 is the right weight for him. But there is one fight that I got to throw out there that would be at 118. Nonito versus oh Chocolatito. Oh legend goodness. versus legend. I'd love to see that fight happen and then both get a big paycheck for it. But but yeah, I would, wouldn't want him anywhere near Inouye or, or anyone else at, at that weight. And certainly, yeah, 115. Yeah, he might have a few more good years left in him somehow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, the night before, Jose Ramirez Jr. made his return to action after losing his belts in a 140-pound unification with Josh Taylor last May. Um, his return to the ring marked a return to winning ways uh, as he took a unanimous decision win over Jose Pedraza by scores of 116-112 across the board. Eric, how did he look? And with Taylor apparently moving up to welterweight following his close call with Jack Catterall, is Ramirez the top dog at 140 pounds now? Well, as far as how he looked, um, I'm going to give you an incredibly boring answer. Uh, He looked good. The fight was good. Uh, Nothing spectacular, nothing disastrous, just good. Uh, This is why they don't invite me to come on first take. Um, uh, The fight was moderately compelling, you know, just competitive enough without Pedraza ever making you think he might win. The pace was solid. This fight was just a solid B all around, and Ramirez's performance was, well... Yeah, like I said, good. Um, I actually was a teeny bit surprised by the scores. I had it 117-111, sort of odd that in Fresno, all three judges Mm. gave Pedraza pretty much every possible benefit of the doubt, Um, especially surprising coming off what we saw with Taylor and Catterall. But uh, Ramirez looked sharp. He was just aggressive enough without leaving himself open. He mixed in body shots. He dealt effectively with Pedraza's southpaw stance and with those sniper counters that Pedraza was looking to land. Most impressively, Pedraza had a decent stretch in rounds six, seven, and eight. He was threatening to get really competitive, and Ramirez found another gear and and totally pulled away. Um, But he never hurt Pedraza, never threatened a stoppage. Uh, and Pedraza sort of went the Chris Colbert route the last two rounds. He mm. seemed content to lose a decision and not risk getting knocked out. Um, so is Ramirez the top dog at 140? If you remove Taylor, I think based on accomplishment combined with recent form, yeah, I, I'd rank Ramirez first. But it's close. There are a few fighters that if they had a round robin, I could see them all winning some and losing some. It's Ramirez, it's Regis Progre, mm-hmm. it's Jose Zapata, it's Jack Catterall. And then there's Javante Davis, who, if he fights again at this weight, might be the best, but he mm-hmm. certainly hasn't proven it at 140 like the other guys have. Uh, as I said last week, I'd love to see Ramirez Zapata too settle that score. Uh, but You know, Ramirez Progre is about a 50-50 fight also. It's a good, fairly deep division. And it doesn't have a totally obvious top dog if indeed Taylor moves up to welterweight. But I would, for the moment, probably slide Ramirez into that spot. Mm. 
All right, let's move on to the news. Uh, the main event this week remains the same as the main event in news bulletins around the world, the ongoing and increasingly brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Klitschko brothers, Vasily Lomachenko and Oleksandr Usyk, are all now in their home country and have pledged to fight to protect their freedom and their homeland. A Russian POW actually name-checked both Usyk <laughs> and Lomachenko during a widely circulated video the other day, an interesting aside in a stark video where he spoke about state-controlled news and disinformation. Uh, Usyk spoke to CNN, and his words felt very honest and raw. He said, quote, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to kill anybody. But if they will be killing me, I will have no choice. Hmm. It's in line with the boxer's mindset, right? Uh, I'd better try to knock him out because yeah. if I don't, he'll knock me out. Um, Usyk, of course, is slated to defend his heavyweight belts in a rematch against Anthony Joshua. But he understandably stated that, quote, I really don't know when I'm going to be stepping back in the ring. My country and my honor are more important to me than a championship belt. Uh, hard to argue with that. This is a moment in time that is far more important than boxing. And yet, here we are with a boxing podcast. Uh, so I should ask you, do you think we will see Usyk defend against Joshua anytime soon? Or what about Lomachenko's possible fight with George Cambosos? Is this war in Ukraine actually making Cambosos versus Devin Haney more likely? Or, or is it kind of silly for us to even be discussing these guys' boxing careers at this moment? I mean, it's a great question. I guess it's all impossible to answer until we know how long this situation is going to last or how it's going to end or how it's going to evolve. Like, is what we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks, is that going to exist for weeks or for months? Is Russia going to essentially take over the country, but it's going to be a guerrilla resistance? And if so, are the likes of Lomachenko and Usyk going to continue to be a part of this? Or is there going to come a point where say President Zelensky urges people like Lomachenko and Usyk, we need you out representing Ukraine and doing what you do. You're more valuable to us alive than dead. Right. Do we have a sudden ceasefire? When does any of this happen? And I guess we just we just don't know. Um, it's hard to see things resolving in the short term, that's for sure. You know, Eddie Hearn earlier in the week said something to the effect of he didn't think that Usyk going over there would affect the rematch with Joshua and be expected Usyk to be in training camp in about four weeks. And I saw that and I thought, hmm, Eddie's a good guy and a smart guy. And I'll bet he wants to take that back when he thinks about it a little bit more. And and sure enough, a day or two later, he, he came out with a much better and more considered comment about, you know, this was a very un obviously a unique situation. They weren't going to try to force anything. Um, if necessary, AJ would take an interim fight while they waited for Usyk. Um, and you have to figure, I think, that that's going to be the most likely scenario, that AJ would take an interim fight. Cambos is perhaps more likely to turn toward Devin Haney. I, I don't doubt that Joshua and Cambosis and their teams will give Usyk and Lomachenko time. Nobody's going to be trying to make any rush decisions or force anybody to do anything. But at the same time, the you know, Cambosis and Joshua and others, they've got to get on with their career or they have to fight, they have to earn money. Mm. Uh, I suspect we'll see a situation where, you know, they might take these other fights, but like the, the sanctioning bodies are probably going to sort of keep Usyk and Lomachenko's status in, in, in stasis, right? right. They, they keep their belts or their rankings or whatever, whenever they're ready. 
um, you know, rather like one sanctioning body did with Vitaly Klitschko when he had a back injury for five years. Right. He was allowed to come right back and fight for the heavyweight championship. I, I could see something like this, but for but for better reasons. Um, yeah, I, I think that whenever they're able to, they'll be allowed to come back and either defend their titles or, or challenge without being at any risk of them being stripped. But as we said before, and as we said right now, they have other things on their mind. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, the rest of the boxing world does keep turning, and we do have a whole bunch of more conventional news items to get to. Um, staying with the heavyweights, uh, Tyson Fury held a press conference to officially announce his bout with Dillian White on April 23rd, and he had the floor to himself as White, for unspecified reasons, refused to show up. Uh, the previously scheduled and then postponed middleweight bout between Gennady Golovkin and Ryota Murata was postponed because of COVID. Remember that? Remember that? That was news item number one? <laughs> Uh, that fight is back on and will take place on April 9th at the Saitama Super Arena in Japan. And a lot of Showtime news. Uh, the network has confirmed that the welterweight title bout between Errol Spence and Ordenis Ugas will be on Showtime pay-per-view on April 16th. Tim Zhu and Terrell Gaucher will reportedly be facing off in a junior middleweight bout in Minneapolis on March 27th. And it looks as if May will feature back-to-back -back Showtime Championship boxing cards with the Jamel Charlo-Brian Castaño rematch set for May 19th and the long-discussed David Benavidez-David Lemieux clash set for the following week, May 26th. Uh, finally, uh, Keith Eidek is reporting that Javante Davis versus Raleigh Romero will finally go ahead on Showtime pay-per-view on June 2nd. Uh, any thoughts about any or all of those, Eric? A pretty damn busy schedule we have yeah. coming up in the spring on Showtime and elsewhere. Um, maybe boxing can steal away a few angry baseball fans who will be looking for other Aye. sports to watch while those greedy billionaires keep kneecapping their sport. Uh, the Fury press conference was rather hilarious. Uh, I enjoyed the stare down with himself. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dillian White, by not showing up, he actually probably did more to get the fight publicity than he would have if he'd been there. Um Golovkin Murata is fine, but it feels now like one of those fights where I just want to finally get it over with so Triple yeah. G can move on to bigger and better things. Um, Spence Ugas, we've talked about the fight before because we knew it was basically a done deal. Now it's officially official and they had a press conference and everything. And I'm a little bummed at the timing because it's during my kids' spring break and we're going to be on vacation, so I will miss the fight and the post-fight pod, which means... Kieran is currently exploring his options for a guest co-host that week. Uh, I suggest BJ Flores if his penis is all healed up by then. <laughs> or the dog. <laughs> right, or the dog. Ooh, I would, that's a great interview. I mean, you get the scoop. It'll go rough, though. <laughs> oh, come oh, on. Come on. Uh, <laughs> you had a bad one in the, in the opener. I'm, it's, I'm entitled. I think this was far worse. <laughs> Anyway, okay, back to boxing. Um, I like uh, I I like Zhu Uh That was originally expected to be the co-feature to Charlo Castaño before Castaño's injury. Instead, it's the headliner on its own card one week later. Uh, Charlo Castaño, of course, the first fight was outstanding. Uh, it's one of the nominees for the BWAA's 2021 Fight of the Year. There had to be a rematch, and though some of the alpha alphabet bodies have tried to screw it up uh, it is indeed moving ahead uh benavidez lemieux hard to say if that is a mm. violent slugfest or a mismatch it depends yeah. how much lemieux has left um and javante versus raleigh um i have no vacation plans as of now for that weekend so that's one showtime pay-per-view i'm available to cover uh, no <laughs> showtime boxing with mulvaney and flores or mulvaney <laughs> and the dog that that week 
Uh, okay, wrapping up the news section with a few outside-the-ring items. Um, none of them terribly uplifting, I'll warn you in advance. Uh, Guillermo Rigando suffered a freak accident at home in Miami when a pressure cooker exploded Oof. in his face, injuring his eyes and face. His vision at present is reportedly at just 20%, though reports are that he's hopeful of a recovery. In Puerto Rico, former three-division world titleist and Hall of Famer Wilfredo Gomez has been removed from his home and admitted to a psychiatric facility after being found, quote, living in squalor. And lastly, Michael Marley, a longtime writer, manager, lawyer, and all-around boxing figure, died at his home on Cape Cod after battling Parkinson's. He was 72. Uh, Kieran, Sorry to give you a downer of a segment to comment on, but uh, anything you'd like to say about any of those items? Yeah, first of all, poor Rigo. Um, my goodness, life can take a turn in just a moment, can't it? Uh, so apparently he was cooking beans, and what probably happened, uh, according to his manager, was that it can happen, you know, uh, probably something, one of the beans or something got stuck in one of the steam outlets, pressure just built up, and boom, just uh, he had boiling water all over his face and in his eyes, Um he has recovered some of his vision, uh, but his manager says the next 10 days are really going to be the, the crucial ones uh, in terms of determining how much of his vision he's able to get, if he's able to get it all back, and of course, subsequently, whether he's able to continue with his career or not. And obviously, we wish him the very best there. Uh, my God, the Wilfredo Gomez story is incredibly sad. Uh, it sounds as if there was somebody taking advantage of him who'd moved in with him sort of taken over his care and his communication, really cut him off from everybody else in his life. Mm. Uh, his estranged wife grew concerned over him after not being able to reach him for a year. Uh, and she reached out to authorities reportedly, um, according to a piece for uh, Ring uh, by Diego Maria, um, Gomez's companion, for want of a better word, uh, initially refused to give the authorities access um, before relenting. Um, I hope that he's able to find some treatment and better care, which he apparently very clearly needs. And RIP to Mike Marley, who was one of boxing's last great characters. Uh, he was a precocious uh, thing in his youth. He founded a fan club for Muhammad Ali in his teens, and uh, Ali took a shine to him. Uh, like the kids Moxie, let him hang around um, with him. Uh, Marley went on to become a writer, uh, a correspondent uh, for the New York Post, I think it was. He also ended up being Don King's PR guy for a while. He left to become Terry Norris's manager. He was a fight lawyer. He was, like he said, one of those all-round boxing characters uh, and a good guy uh, on top of that as well. And, and I'm very sorry to hear of his passing because the boxing world, and indeed I think the world at large, is much more boring for his departure. <laughs> yeah. Two of the items we touched on in the news segment are relevant to this week's guest. He's been on the podcast several times before, and he's always a, a terrific and generous guest. He is the trainer of Errol Spence and Jamel Charlo, among others. Derek James, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, I appreciate that. Happy to be here, man. I appreciate that. So, uh, Derek, let's go back to last year, um, specifically last August. Your welterweight star, Errol Spence Jr., was less than two weeks away from what had the potential to be a career-defining fight against the living legend, Manny Pacquiao. And then Errol had to withdraw with a retinal detachment. Can you walk us through the emotions for you as the trainer of not only having to pull out of the fight, but then watching Pacquiao lose to your Dennis Ugas? You know, I think that, for me, it wasn't so... It's all about my guy's health. 
I mean, you know, you want to make sure your guys stay healthy to where they can live their life. I wouldn't want them to have to lose an eye, anything like that. So, you know, it was good that they were able to catch it and he pulled out at the right time because had he done his physicals a month before, two months before, weeks before, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have known. So it was all about time. It was all about kismet. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was like it was meant to be able to catch the issue. Um, and to watch, I, I really had no feelings because I think that I wanted uh, Ugas to win the fight. I mean, even before the fight, I went to the locker room and I told him that I'm rooting for him and to the, the stage was set for him to win this fight by filling in for Arrow. I mean, and I said, go get him, go be great. So I wanted, I wanted to see him be successful. Hmm. That's interesting, because you, you would think that the natural reaction for some people would be, well, if Manny wins this fight, we can still get that big money against him next. That wasn't your top priority, though, huh? No, I mean, it was just like, I mean, I saw an opportunity for somebody. You think about Dennis Ugas to affect six times and get caught to only make it on the seventh time. He's very motivated. Mm. Hard to discourage, right? But at the same time, I'm like, listen, I, I wanted I wanted to see him be great because he, his story comes over, he tries to defect, he comes over, has great success, but then he loses. So then people understate him, right? And then he gets to a point to where he's uh he's trying to gauge, he's a gauge for the younger guy, like a gatekeeper almost. But he knocks one guy out and uh then he comes back and knocks another guy out. So he fought his way to earn and deserve the position that he's in. So I'm happy for that. I'm, I'm a guy who's going to applaud everybody for everything they've done. It's been a roller coaster couple of years for Errol. Um, he had that car accident in late 2019. That could have been so much worse than it ended up being. Came back to the ring, beat Danny Garcia. Then, as you guys were talking about, he had the Pacquiao fight lined up and then the eye injury. How has he coped with all of this? And, and what's his mindset now going into the Ugas fight? I think that I think that, I mean, some people may look at it as a roller coaster. I look at it as life. I mean, especially with the Ugas, I mean, the Pacquiao situation is, and I always say, when you make plans, life happens. So sometimes you get what you want or you work for, sometimes you don't. I mean, and um, unfortunately, the car accident was what it was, and I think that um, it's just life. I mean, you know, I mean, but he's been able to have the fortitude, toughness to be able to come back and be resilient and very strong-minded, very disciplined to get back to this point. So, I mean, I think that's what it is, is that. And he's very, um, he has a lot of desires. He wants to be the best. He wants to be great. So, I mean, with, with that, all that being said, that's what we see is Arrow working towards the idea of being greatness. Does it motivate him even a little bit more, having to, like, overcome some of this stuff? I think that, I think that he's motivated because he's doubted. And so, yes, these are things that people would be written off, right? The car accident, then to have the detached retina. I don't even like talking about the car accident because that thing's so far behind us, right? Mm-hmm. The detached retina is more present. But it's like all these obstacles, man, they can either do one or two things, make you or break you, mm-hmm. right? And I think that it's made him really show them what it really is like for me. Like the last training camp showed me who he really, I mean, I've known who he was. I know what type of fighter he is, what kind of young man he is. But the camp that he went through and his, his toughness and his resilience, I mean, he showed me everything I need to know about him. 
So so now he is lined up to face Ugas. Um, is Ugas, would you say, a, a more dangerous opponent right now than, than Pacquiao would have been? And and what in particular do you see as the biggest challenge of, of facing your Dennis Ugas? I think Ugas is the biggest challenge because, first of all, he's a very motivated guy. He's very dangerous, and he's very – he's a guy that won't quit. He's never satisfied, right? But he's, he has the ability to more, the reason why it makes him dangerous because you, you kind of know what to expect from Pacquiao. He's a big puncher, and, and he's going to come and be, you know, he's going to jump all over you. But he fights in spots, right? But Ugas, you never know what fight he's going to fight because he's really that good of a fighter, and he's really that well-rounded that he's very intellectual as a boxer, mm. very intelligent, right? But most guys and we the natural athletes, but with not much technique. Hmm. He has technique, he has a great skill set, and he has a great teaching and trainer. Yeah, I was I, I was thinking that you used the term well-rounded, and that's definitely something that stands out with Ugas. He's well-rounded, he's well-schooled. Is that kind of the, the toughest sort of guy to beat? Maybe there isn't one singular spectacular quality, but also not having glaring weaknesses. Is that is that tougher to beat than, say, a guy like Pacquiao, who there are spectacular things, and there are also some things you can take advantage of? Well, I think that Ugas, this, I mean, like, listen, he's very schooly, very technical. And listen, more than anything, it's the intellectual aspect of it all. Mm-hmm. Be intelligent. And to create certain aspects, so he's a tough, he's a tough guy. But he's like, for me, I think that as long as you're Earl Spence is who he's supposed to be, and he shows up as Earl Spence, he should be able to deal with that. I mean, he should be able to. I mean, because he's prepared. He had two great spawn partners, and uh, getting him, getting him ready. And uh, I think that, um, but Ugas is phenomenal. I mean, I really watched it because I'm going back and I'm studying because I. I, would, I knew we would, this day was coming, right? Eventually. So I kind of watch him a little bit, remember stuff here and there a little bit. But then we go back and watch video of his skill set and his technique and how diverse and how versatile it is, right? And he has like more depth. That's when it's like a different situation because he doesn't fight like any of the other Cubans. Mm. He's not going to rock you to sleep and you know, you when you when those guys fight, you change the channel back and forth. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you might wait till the decision. You know, he's a guy you gotta watch the whole time. Yeah. Watch the whole fight. Just curious, you 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 mentioned he has two really good sparring partners. Uh can you share who they are? Is it anyone that, that we would have heard of? Well, he's sparring. I mean Emmanuel Lillene, who oh, okay. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was rated before. Maybe rated now, I'm not for sure. Then we have Agent Taylor, which is a heavyweight that he's been sparring with for years. Oh, um, a heavyweight. All right. <laughs> but he's very fast and he's very he's, he's very tough. So you know, we need somebody tough to mm. kind of like, you know, be in there with them. Mm. Um I'm sure you're tired of hearing his name, but one person we got to mention when we have you is Terence Crawford. Uh, does mm-hmm. the fact that he's now left top rank, do you think that would make it easier for you guys to make that fight? And what do you think of the odds of it finally happening this year or next? I think that, first of all, I think that Errol, him being on top rank was not an issue. It was just the fact that Bob Ham was not willing to lose money on a fight like that. Or mm. to see, it's like, if you have a guy who sells 130000 you have a guy who sells 700000 
The guy who sells hundred thirty thousand can't expect to get the same thing that the guy sells seven hundred thousand. So it's like I think just dealing with the actual reality of business, because you're only as good as as many tickets as you sell. So that's your power. Like that's your that's your bargaining chip. Right. If you want it all, I can sell this much. So your resume doesn't say you can do that. And I mean, so it's not Bob Aaron. It wasn't Bob Aaron. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I think that. Anything's possible. I think that Bob Aaron said to himself, I'm not going to lose any money. He said, you can be the best fight in the world, but I'm not going to lose money on you. Keep losing money on you like that. So. You, you think it's kind of like up to Terrence to really decide if he wants the fight at this point? Because really, is like, do you take the fight or do you take the deal? Because mm-hmm. if, really if you're really if you really good as you think you are, you have to lower your standards or your perspective of who you are. Because like if you, because I, I mean I did some math. Now when he fought Sean Porter, the fight was $69.99, right? They sold 130,000 pay-per-view buyers, right? So Sean Porter got four million. Terence Crawford got six million. That's ten million dollars. But the fight from the pay-per-view buyers only grossed nine million dollars. Right. <laughs> so. They lost. I mean, even at the gate, it wasn't a sellout because they fought at Mandalay Bay, which is a small arena, small venue, and it didn't sell out. So it's like, I don't know what businessman would do that. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't stay in business longer if you have invested. Like, what do you think about? But I think that, hey man, listen, I think it's gonna happen because Errol, you hear Errol saying he wants to be the undisputed champ of the world, so that means it's gonna happen. All right, so, so one more question about Errol, um, just sort of bigger picture. It feels like he's still a young fighter, like, he, like he's, you know, he's just entering his prime maybe, but he's not actually all that young anymore. He's 32. Um, right. He could well have like eight great years left for all we know, right. but um, is there a growing sense of urgency that the next one, two, three years, he's got to do major legacy building ASAP? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a question. Yeah, for Al Heyman, because I'm not really involved in that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the old defer to Al Heyman answer. I've heard that one before. I mean, I'm just saying, because I, I can't speak for Errol or Al mm-hmm. being the manager, me just being the trainer. So I'm just the guy who prepares him for those tasks. But I think that, I mean, you know, it's not urgency. I think that, you know, he, he's 32. He's been cocooned. See what I'm saying? Like, it's because you think about those little spots where he didn't, that's it's like one chance that he's not taking. Being off of that, you know, that, that mean for, with the accident, like, you know, it's a lot. I mean, the boxing takes a lot out of you. So I think that, you know, um, he's been kind of cocooned, which is okay because he's still fresh. Right. Right. Um, before we let you go, we got to ask you about Jamel. Uh, his rematch with Brian Castaño is now set. Um, got to get your thoughts on the scoring of that first fight and, and how you feel you can make sure that there's no doubt about him getting a W in the rematch. The scoring of the fight was, um, it's what it was. I mean, I think that if you look at it, you know, Errol, not Errol, I mean, sorry, Jamel, <laughs> in the second round, he won the second round pretty decent with the, you know, with the, he hurt Kassane. A couple rounds, I guess, obviously, it was the game to him, but he won the last four rounds pretty big. I think, like, the time he was hitting him, really, if you look at it, I just look at it like this. It wasn't a definitive you know, victor in the first fight. So this is the time where you go out and you show exactly who you are. 
And we've been having great, great chemistry in camp. Great, you know, great, everything has been great. So I talked to him last night. He's ready to go. He's really like ready, ready to go. So I'm happy for him. Nice. Hey, Derek, look, you're always really good to us and giving us your time and giving us some great answers. And we really, really appreciate you joining us again. And all the best with, the, you know, basically back-to-back big fights coming up. Back-to-back. Listen, man, that's, if, 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 if you sit up and say, I want to be able to have this in my life. You couldn't dream or imagine this. Because, I mean, like, who's to say you get that, right? But I'm getting there. Then I have Frank Martin coming also. So it's like, I think he's fighting in May or something like that. So it'll be three big fights back to back. He's fighting, in a, I think, uh, maybe like a big title limit or something like that. So, okay. yeah, I mean, it's gonna be, it's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah that, that vacation's going to have to wait, isn't it? <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> man, listen, man, I'll, I'll get that vacation. Eventually. It's coming. And, and, and when it comes, you will have earned it. That's for sure. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Derek. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay, great stuff from Derek there about some major fights a bit off in the distance. Let's turn to something more immediate. This Friday, March 11th, Showbox returns with a triple header from Deadwood, South Dakota. You may recall that last week we mentioned it was a quadruple header, but Mekwurban Sanganov, who was originally slated to take on Ardriel Holmes in the main event, was forced to withdraw due to injury, and Hershidbek Normatov, who was scheduled to take on Vernon Brown in the co-main, also suffered a training camp injury. As it happens, the two fights were right around the same weight. One was scheduled for 154 pounds, the other for 160, but Vernon Brown can fight all over the scale. He's been anywhere from 139 to 159, so it worked out. Holmes versus Brown is now the main event, set for 10 rounds in the 154-pound division atop what is now a three-fight card. So let me get your thoughts on this new main event, Kieran. It's the unbeaten Holmes, 11-0 with five KOs, against the once-beaten Brown, 13-1-1, nine KOs. What's the scouting report on these two, and what is your official pick for our picks competition? So Holmes is from and based in Flint, Michigan. He's a natural Southpaw. Uh, he's 6'2", so he's tall for the weight. Um, he's 27. He's been a pro for five years, and he had a solid amateur background. He's a former national champion, and he finished second in the 2015 Olympic trials. Uh, he has gone through some trauma he considered quitting boxing a few years ago after his little brother was shot dead in a drive-by shooting in 2017 but instead elected to stick at it uh, as you mentioned he's compiled a record of 11 and 0 he describes himself as a pot shotter uh, and he believes his jab will be the key against brown um brown is 32 years old uh, like Holmes, he fights left-handed although he's actually a natural righty right and if Holmes is tall for his weight Brown at 5'7", most definitely is not. Um, okay. And unsurprisingly, he says of himself that, quote, I bring a lot of pressure. I like coming forward. I'm aggressive. I don't really like to try to box pretty. Um, he has fought a lot of taller guys, he says. Of course he has. Uh, right. And he's certainly shown an ability to get in and cause damage. Uh, he knocked down Jamonte Clark, who's probably the biggest name on his record and the only man to defeat him before he lost on points. But... I kind of suspect he might have his work cut out from here. There's a caveat here that I've seen very little of either man. Um, but from the little that I've seen of him, um, Holmes looks fairly technically solid. He's not only tall, but he looks like he fights tall. Um, he does look like he does have the ability to dig in and work on the outside, on the inside, excuse me, when he needs to or wants to. 
But I don't think he's going to want to do that against Brown. And, and I expect him to follow his own prescribed game plan here and try to pot shot on the outside. It looks like he can get some pretty good leverage on his backhand when he needs to as well and really get his opponent's attention. Uh, I think he's going to do that. He's going to try to keep Brown at range, but I don't think he's going to want to step in enough to put himself at risk uh, of Brown's power. I, I think he, Holmes is probably going to end up winning a unanimous decision here. Yeah, I see this fight very similarly in terms of just the the obvious clash of styles. This fight is all about the real estate, all about the distance at yeah. which it's going to be fought. Can Holmes control the distance with his jab and keep Brown off him? If so, could be an easy night. Um, but that's easier said than done. Brown is feisty and dangerous. This is a really interesting matchup, and uh, neither guy is getting off easy with the opponent switcheroo. Um, yeah. You look at the matchup, you think you see something that should give one guy an advantage, but then you look closer and not so much. Like, uh, as you said, Holmes is a tall six foot two inch southpaw. That's a tough kind of guy to take on on short notice, right? Mm. Well, the five seven Brown is used to fighting taller guys, as you said, and was even preparing for a tall southpaw in Normatov. Um, so maybe that's not such a big deal. Then you look at the inactivity. You see that this right. is Holmes's first fight since COVID began, and that feels like a major red flag, except Brown has only had one fight since COVID began. So really, the ring rust should just about even out. Um, I found it really interesting what you mentioned about Holmes describing himself as a pot shotter. You don't, you don't hear guys uh, <laughs> label themselves that way, typically. Um, and in the limited footage that I was able to watch, he seemed a little more aggressive than you would think based on the pot shotter description. Um, I also did watch the fight you mentioned for Brown uh, against Jamonte Clark, his lone loss. Uh, and as you said, he had Clark knocked down, had him hurt. He had him in big trouble only to lose a close decision. But, you know, that fight tells me Brown, although I would call him the B side here, tells me he isn't some easy walkover. So right. I think an upset is definitely in play here, but uh, just like you, I, I'm not going to pick it. Holmes has the pedigree, the jab. He can control the distance. I think with some scary moments mixed in, mm -hmm. he should prevail by unanimous decision. And uh, and I'll give Holmes bonus points if he knocks out Vernon Sub-Zero Brown. That's his nickname, Sub-Zero. <laughs> and then in tribute to the running man says, Sub-Zero, now Plane zero. He instantly <laughs> becomes my favorite showbox prospect if he does that. Uh, the co-main is now an eight-round lightweight contest between Luis Acosta, he's 12-0 with 11 KOs, and Edwin De Los Santos, who's 13-1 with 12 KOs. So, between them, they have 25 wins and 23 KOs. Is that any way this goes the distance? <laughs> it's possible, but uh, yeah, certainly a distance fight is the plus money underdog here. Um, a knockout one way or the other seems more likely. Um, but we should know one of these fighters has appeared on Showbox before. It was De Los Santos just two months ago. He took on William Foster in an eight-rounder, and it went the distance. Mm. Um, the Showbox hardcores will remember the fight. It was the opening bout of the opening card of 2022. And Delos Santos started fast, looked good for two rounds, then pretty much ran out of gas and lost a close decision. Reading up on Delos Santos now, I see he had a hectic training situation coming into that fight. Definitely wasn't well prepared. It makes sense that his legs got heavy after a couple of rounds. So something to look for here. Is he going to be in better shape this time? Uh, then again, will it matter? Will, will one of these guys ice the other in the first round or two? Very possible. Acosta is a 
huge wild card. He doesn't just have 11 KOs in 12 fights. He has 10 first round KOs out of those 11, um, but his wins have all come against dreadful opposition. He's never faced an opponent with a winning record, not even close. He has natural power, no doubt, but this is a huge step up against an opponent who at least has some experience being in a real fight. So huge questions. You know, can Acosta replicate those big KO results and against an opponent way better than what he's faced so far? And can De Los Santos be better than what we saw against Foster? It's a compelling matchup with definite potential for fireworks. And uh, yeah, the under on rounds is probably the smart bet. <laughs> um, one other note on Acosta. I have to read this quote from him. Uh, if you're squeamish, skip forward 30 seconds. Uh, I, I cringed a little bit reading this, but I got to share it. He said, I don't know if you'll be able to see it on TV, but I do have a big scar on my back that goes diagonally. If anybody ever wonders what happened when I was little, I did a backflip. I landed on a screw that was on the wall and I just sort of slid oh, down it. That's what it's from. Oh, <laughs> Oh. oh my goodness <laughs> yeah okay should we move on to the opening bout <laughs> i think we should <laughs> um the opener sees giovanni marquez son of our friend former title holder and showbox analyst raul marquez make his professional debut in a 140 pound four-rounder against 2-0 nelson morales raul gave us the scouting report on his son last week but kieran is there realistically anything we can learn about giovanni from this and who's going to have a tougher night giovanni or his dad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that there's much we're likely to learn about Giovanni, really. I mean, his pro, a pro debut is all about getting a fighter used to light gloves and no headgear and the pressure of being pro. Uh, in fact, you'll probably hope we don't learn much about him because if everything goes according to plan, it should all be relatively uneventful and it should just all about be all about, you know, Giovanni getting in there and getting the job done and, and, and moving on. Um, we'll learn the most if he, for some reason, struggles right. or, heaven forbid, loses. Uh, so I, I, I don't think we can learn much about what potential he has or what's going to make him good in, in the short uh, appearance that we're going to have uh, in a pro debut. So, yeah, he's going to hope that it's going to be relatively uneventful. Um, that said, I'm going to cheat and say the guy with the toughest night is going to be Nelson Morales. It's it's <laughs> okay. it's hard enough being the B-side against the pro debutant. But when that debutant is the son of a former champion who is also a commentator on the network airing the fight, he's going to go into this knowing that he's going to have to knock Giovanni out twice. And I'm sure he knows as much. Uh, I, as for Giovanni, look, I can only imagine the kind of pressure that a fighter feels when he's making his pro debut and all the more so when it's televised. But as Raul said, He's got a. His kids had a pretty good amateur background. He's been in these tournaments. He's he's aware of the pressure. This is where, you know, that amateur background really, really comes in useful. Um, and of course, Raul has been there with him all the way, and he's certainly no stranger to fight nights. But of everybody involved, Raul's going to have the most butterflies. Uh, look, adrenaline flows when you're working the broadcast. It flows when you're working the corner. He's doing both on one night <laughs> right. with his son. Uh, and I'm sure when it's all over, he's going to be feeling very proud. But also when the night is over and the adrenaline wears off, uh, our friend Raul is going to be sleeping like a baby on uh, <laughs> on Friday night, I think. So, yeah, I think Raul's probably going to have he's going to, you know, physically hurt less. But uh, he's in 
I think mentally and emotionally, he's the one for the toughest night. I'll, I'll tell you who else uh, potentially has a little a little pressure on him is uh, is our friend Steve Farhood. If it's not easy for Giovanni, <laughs> if 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 there are close, difficult to score rounds, I wouldn't want to be the guy handing in a scorecard for my friend Raúl Marquez's son on Showbox. That's uh, he, he's he's definitely one guy I think hoping for a, a quick knockout in this one. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yes, exactly. Uh, all right. It is Tweet of the Week time. Uh, and it's our second mention this episode of our friend Keith Eidek. Uh Eric, I don't know if you saw the video of Eddie Hearn and his right-hand man, Frank Smith, sparring. Um, it culminated in Eddie sending a left hand to Frank's liver and Frank dropping a one knee. Uh, own Boxing tweeted out the video, which I'm sure Frank just loved. Um, <laughs> and Keith retweeted it, quote retweeted it, saying... If there was ever any doubt, Frank is the true brains behind this operation. I give you exhibit A. Let the boss exit the ring <laughs> feeling good about himself. Brian Daly, if you're listening and you feel the need to work out any frustrations, Eric has volunteered to allow you to work them out with him in the ring. <laughs> so I saw that that clip was going around i had not actually watched it so i didn't even know what the outcome of it was i just knew that there was video of uh, of, of eddie sparring with somebody um yeah smart decision there by frank it kind of <laughs> reminds me of a uh, spoiler for a 30 year old movie here but mr mom when he when he throws the the race at the company picnic to make sure and let the boss win even though uh michael keaton's character uh, had it had it in the bag clearly um and if i were to spar brian daly i don't think i'd have to throw it i'm quite confident he could beat me uh, cleanly whether 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 i'm trying to lose or not see you got see you're already you're already got it going you're already <laughs> saying the right stuff so good work good work thank you all right and it's a good it's a good episode for a 1980s movie references from eric uh, well yes listen that's when i was in my prime <laughs> you had a prime if i did it was in the <laughs> 80s okay understood, understood. All right. Uh, let's finish the show with the reveal of next week's top five list. Uh, my turn to assign to Kieran. And I think I have something here that is topical, interesting, and shouldn't require much research on your part. Oh, uh, <laughs> we've done a handful of top five lists focusing on a particular fighter, uh, Miguel Cotto, Canelo, Larry Holmes, etc., listing their top five performances or top five wins. I'm following in that tradition, but I'm asking you about two fighters at once. Let's celebrate the Klitschko brothers. Oh, uh, nice. While they're fighting for their country and showing what leadership is all about, let's celebrate their Hall of Fame boxing careers. Kieran, I want you to count down the top five greatest performances by a Klitschko. Pick okay. a Klitschko, any Klitschko. You might end up with three Vitali fights and two Vlad fights or four Vlad fights and one Vitali fight. However, it ends up split. That's up to you. Uh, I can't imagine it will be 5-0, so I won't put in a stipulation that you right. need to include at least one fight from each brother because I'm not worried about that possibility. Uh, so there you go. Straightforward assignment. Top five boxing performances by a Klitschko brother. Okay. And, you know, as always, the notion of a top of what constitutes a top five to be, you know, sort of determined by the list maker. So mm -hmm. if not necessarily the most exciting, but perhaps right. the, the most significant, any combination thereof. Yeah. However you want to do it. Great. I, I called it greatest performances specifically. I didn't, Understood. I did not include the word wins for I know obvious that, reasons. I, my but... thought went exactly to <laughs> okay. that. So there okay. you go. Yeah, that's good. That's topical and that's nice. Yes. I appreciate that. Dennis. That'll be, uh, that'll be fun to do. Thank you. All right. Great. All right. That will do it. Many thanks again to Derek James for once again putting aside some time to 
for joining us. We really appreciate it. We will be back next week. We'll back on to the Valley Marquez's debut and the show. Thanks for listening.